0: glad that you're here. It's the last weekend of spring break and so I'm surprised that you're not all in Cancun. But I'm I'm glad that you're here. And those of you who are watching us online, we want to welcome you today as well. A.W. Tozer said, Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending on her concept of God. So that means the number one challenge we face is not cultural. It's not a, a challenge within that is the number one challenge we face. It's how we perceive God. It's a lack of understanding of how big and great and powerful God really is. And if if we just had a different perspective, if we had that kind of perspective every day, how would that change everything? Now, I think it's probably true for the church, and it's probably true for Christians too. Our basic problem is our concept of God. You may recognize this it's a box. And a lot of you have probably carried these in your time. Uh, Since I graduated college, I've moved to eight different houses. So eight different times I've had to carry boxes like this. Now sometimes uh, across the country, sometimes just across town. And they come in different sizes. This is kind of a medium box. But you can get small boxes and big boxes. And, And the problem is a small box you can't put that much in. A big box you can put a whole lot in, but it's really hard to handle. And so you have to decide what size box I'm going to use. Now, the older I get, the more I'm really comfortable with this one and not the refrigerator-sized box that you can fill with tools and try to prove you're a man by lifting it and then going to the hospital the next day when nobody's watching. But I've chosen this medium-sized box. Now, when you're picking a box, you have to decide, what am I going to put in the box? What is the box actually for? Because if you have a small box, just a few things go in it. Big box, a lot of things go in it. But you have to decide, what is it that I really want to fit in that box? And then, then you choose the size box you want. Here's the point. I think a lot of us have put God in a medium-sized box. That's what we've decided is right for God. For some reason, we've decided this is where God's going to go, and we like to put things in boxes in our life, and so we go, I've got work over here, I've got family over here, and these sizes of boxes. This is the box that we have chosen for God. We're going to put him in a medium-sized box. Or maybe somebody handed you a box back in time, maybe as a family member, maybe a church denomination handed you a box and said, this is the box God fits in. We've, we've investigated this, this is the size box you need, and so here, and we just accepted that. But I hope that you've learned as we've gone through the story together that no matter what size of box you choose, the box is too small for God. God is not going to fit in that little box. He wasn't made to put in a box at all. And so we want to keep him small enough that we can handle him, that we can manage him, but not too big that it gets out of control. But if you're trying to fit God into a box, then he's just too small. And this is what happens. If you have a small God that fits in a box, you're going to live in fear all the time. You're going to be anxious. You're going to feel like you're under pressure all the time because your God isn't big enough to help you. He's not big enough to talk to about the problems that you have. He's not big enough to take you through what you need him to take you through. If your God is small enough to fit in a box, you're going to find out life is pretty boring and predictable because your God isn't big enough to challenge you to actually risk. Your God isn't big enough to encourage you to do something that would really change something. If your God is small enough to fit in a box, this is what happens. Challenges are going to feel overwhelming to you. Any situation you get in is going to feel hopeless to you because your God isn't big enough to take you through. He's not big enough to fix them, to heal them, to redeem them. He's not big enough to give you hope. He's he's just not big enough for you. And so is it possible that we've put God in a box and we've said, God, here's the space. This is where we want you to be. And we have all kinds of, of ways that we label the box that we put in. We'll say, God, the box that you were put in is labeled, God can never use me after this. God doesn't work like that anymore like we read in the Bible. God just isn't big enough to use me because I don't have the special gifts that I need. And there are all kinds of ways we limit the power of God that he wants to demonstrate in our lives every day. And so as we read through the story, we can see one example after another of how big God really is. And that's what the story is about. It's about the greatness and bigness and and the glory and the power of God. So we tend to look at situations and say, it's too late. And God says, no, I'm about to do my best work. We tend to look at situations and say, well, these people are just too broken. And God says, no, they're not too broken. Watch how I put them back together again. We tend to look at people who seem insignificant to us, and God says, I'm going to use this person to change everything. And I hope that what happens as we read the story together is you don't just get a bigger box for God at all, but you just get rid of the box altogether. And don't try to limit the power of God. What would happen if our concept of God changed? Could it be possible that he could do anything through this church? Now, as a church, any church, you get to that point where you go, we have arrived. Look, look what we have done. But God says, oh no, this is just the beginning. There is so much more that I can do through you. And so as we study together, I think it's pretty clear that God wants to do more than I can think, ask, or imagine. He's bigger than I realized. When we've looked at the story, we've seen a lot of examples. We are in chapter 11 of the story today. If you're following along with us, if you're not following along, this is the first time you've been here, great, you fit right in. But we're in chapter 11, we're talking about David, and we're talking about David before he became the king. And we're going to meet David here in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when he's anointed to be the new king of Israel. He'd be around 14 or 15 years old at this time. So he'd be like a a freshman in high school. And he's working as a shepherd for his family. Being a shepherd wasn't a real good job. That's the job that nobody wanted. That's the chore that when you were young, you didn't want that chore. You wanted your brother or sister to have that chore, but you got that chore. It's a pretty boring job. The, The job description is watch sheep. And that's all there is. After my freshman year in high school, I had a summer job where I was a warehouse manager for a supply company. Sounds pretty impressive until you realize I was the only person in the warehouse, and I just gave my name, the name manager to myself. I mean, nobody ever called me that, but I'm figuring I'm the only one there. I'm the manager. And so in this job, there wasn't a lot to, to fill my time. This supply company had three stores spread out across the Texas panhandle, and they all worked out of one warehouse, and that's where I was. And so about three times a day, a truck would come and bring boxes. It may bring one box or five boxes or ten boxes. Who knows? But somebody had to be there when the truck arrived to bring the boxes. And, and so that's me. And so I was there eight hours a day. Probably had about 30 minutes worth of work that I could do. And so I had to kill time. I listened to the radio and called in in one contest on, on the radio by calling in. Won free tickets to Wonderland Park and, and things like that. I would back the owner's mother's Cadillac out of the inside of the warehouse about once a week and wash it and pull it back in. That was a big thrill for me. It took me about 45 minutes to do if I really went slow at that. I'd sweep and I'd organize the shelves. I'd make up games to play. I mean, you get the idea. I think this is how David felt as he was a shepherd. What am I going to do with my time? What am I going to do to, to enjoy all this time I have out here besides just watching sheep? So you know what he did? He wrote songs. He sang songs, and he played with a slingshot. That's what he did to kill his time. I think he'd put a little target on top of a rock and see if he could hit that with his slingshot. He'd probably do anything he can to fill his time, but he got really good at those things that he was doing. So he's out in the field slinging rocks, singing songs. Maybe you felt like that sometimes where in your life, probably not all the time, but sometimes in your life you're thinking, what am I going to do to fill the time? And that's how David felt right now. But this was a big day for his family because Samuel the prophet is coming to David's house and he's going to anoint the next king of Israel. So it's a big deal. His seven brothers are all in the house because they're candidates for the job. Jesse, David's dad, knows that Samuel is coming. So he has the boys all ready. They're dressed up. They're already clean, presentable. And then Samuel comes on the scene He knows he's there to anoint the next king from the house of Jesse, but he doesn't know which brother is going to be the king. And so he's playing the part of Simon Cowell here, and he's going to judge who will be the next king of Israel. And so he gets to the house, and he looks around, and he finds the first son, and he starts thinking, that's it. I mean, he's the one. The search is over. This is the guy that we want. He's so impressive. Look at this guy. There can't be anybody any better. And here's what he says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. He looks at the older brother and says, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. In other words, if he's not the one, tell me who is the one, because this guy is impressive. I, th- I think this is our choice. But God says, no, he's not the one. You know, it's interesting because Samuel has seen a lot, but Samuel still has a box, and God is fitting in that box. And Samuel's thinking, this is what God wants. This is what God would do. I know because he's in this box. I've seen it before. And so he judges based on what he sees. And God says to Samuel in verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He's saying, Samuel, you're looking at things and judging on things I'm really not paying attention to. You're looking at the appearance. He's strong. He's handsome. I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at the heart, and this is not the guy. So Samuel works his way down the line. It gets kind of awkward though because he makes it through the seven brothers and God has not chosen any of them to be the next king and he doesn't really know what to do. And so he asks Jesse, are there other sons? In other words, is there somebody in the back you haven't brought out? Are you going to surprise me with the greatest one? Is there somebody else there? And apparently Samuel doesn't know there's another brother. And so Jesse says, well, there is one more son, but he's the youngest. How many of you are the youngest in your family? Yeah. I don't think this is a very respectful comment. There's one more son. He's the youngest. I'm the youngest in my family too. And I remember hearing all the time, oh, my brother can do this. My brother can do that. Ricky, he's just the youngest. I I think the literal translation here is he is the runt of the litter. And so he says, I've got one more, but he's out in the fields. He's just a shepherd. And Samuel says, send for him. And so they brought David in. Verse 12 says that when he arrived, the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And on that day, David was anointed the next king of Israel. He's about 15 years old. And I think in his story, chapter one would read God's anointing. And then the subtitle would be God can use anyone. And oftentimes he uses people we would not expect. God looks at things differently than we do. We assume that God will use a certain person. We learned that from an early age that if you want God to use you, then you've got to look a certain way. You've got to act a certain way. And God says, no, don't put my anointing in a box. I'm going to use people that you don't think I would use. And the person you would choose, probably not the person I would choose. And so we see it again with David that it's not always the person you would think David just comes on the scene. He walks straight in from the fields. I want you to try to get the picture of this, of what's going on. There you have the seven brothers. They're all in their suits and ties and dress shoes, and they're all just waiting for the big interview. And David walks in the room. He's wearing jeans and sandals and a t-shirt, and he smells like sheep. And God says, that's the one I want. That doesn't make any sense to us at all. Our tendency is to say, you know, he's too casual. He's too young. He's too inexperienced. What we would say is, I'm too old. But really, you remember Abraham and Sarah? We would say, I'm too guilty. But remember Rahab, the prostitute? God used her. I'm too afraid. I feel God calling me, but so much could go wrong. Remember Gideon? He was hiding from his enemies when God called him a mighty warrior. It's just too hard. Given the circumstances of my life, the situation that I'm in, things are much more complicated than they used to be. There's so many reasons why this just won't work. But remember Joseph, who went from being a slave to a prisoner to the vice president of Egypt? And so this is what the story's about. God can use anybody. And we'll continue to see that as we read through the story. He chooses a poor teenage girl named Mary from a small town. He chooses a simple tax collector named Matthew that everybody else had honestly written off. He chooses a fisherman with a bad temper named Peter, and he chooses a guy who persecuted Christians named Saul to write most of the New Testament. He can use anybody. Carl Henry was commenting on the next generation of Christian leaders, and here's what he says. Many of them are probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus would be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up C.S. Lewis or Charles Colson, who were once unbelievers? The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish on his bumper. The next Charles Wesley might be a profane, womanizing, hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk at a fraternity house at the moment. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic today. And we think, oh no, God's not going to use someone like that. But have you been reading the story? God will use whoever he wants, and he can use anybody. No one thought that David would be the one. God said, he's the one that I want. The next chapter of David's life would probably be titled, God's Opportunities, because he can do anything. You keep reading about David's life, and after he's anointed king, you know what he does? He goes back to being a shepherd again, slinging rocks, singing songs, But he's been anointed king, so it's got to be a strange time and a strange feeling for him, knowing that you're going to be the next king, but right now, you're just killing time being a shepherd. He must have been thinking, God, when are you going to do something? What are we waiting for? When is my opportunity going to come? And I'll bet he probably woke up every morning thinking, maybe today's going to be the day. But he probably also had some doubts, because it sure seems like a long way from the throne when you're sitting on a hillside just watching sheep. And so it goes back to being a shepherd, and then in chapter 16, we read that the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. In other words, Saul is depressed, and he's afraid. And one of his attendants comes to him in verse 18 and says, you know, the youngest son of Jesse, I've heard that he's really good at music. Would it help if somebody came in and played some music for you? And Saul says, sure, bring the kid in. So David comes in, plays his harp, sings some songs, and Saul and David become friends. This is just kind of a side hustle for David. He's really got a job of being a shepherd. This is just something he does in his spare time. But by the time you get to chapter 17, David is likely about 18 years old. He's not 20 yet because he can't go out and fight. His dad calls him from the fields and he says, David... The Israelites are fighting the Philistines, and I know your brothers are out there, and they're probably hungry. Why don't you go check on them and take them some sandwiches? So David goes out to the battlefield where the Israelites are fighting the Philistines, but there's not any fighting going on. The only thing that's going on is this giant named Goliath is just mocking the armies of God, and the Philistines have given this challenge to the Israelites. They said... We will put our best fighter, Goliath, against your best warrior. And whoever wins that cage match, whoever wins that fight to the death, whoever wins, the other nation becomes slaves to the winning nation. So there's no fighting going on, but there's a lot on the line right now. And David hears Goliath mocking the armies of God. And the Bible says in verse 11, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now the message paraphrase translates that like this. They were terrified and lost all hope. But when David hears that challenge, here's what he says in verse 26 of the message. Who does he think he is anyway, taunting the armies of God? Who does this giant think he is? Does he not know who he's messing with? Someone's got to shut this guy up. And so he goes to Saul and says in verse 32, don't worry about the Philistine, I'll go fight him. And don't you know Saul is thinking as he looks at David going... Aren't you my harp player? You think I'm going to send a harp player out to fight this giant? And David says, No, I've got this. Send me. And You think about it. Saul did not have any other option. And he says to David in verse 33, You can't go fight this Philistine. You're too young and inexperienced. And he's been at this fighting business since before you were born. You can't do this. But no one else will do it. So Saul doesn't really have any choice. So Saul gives him his armor and says, here, wear this armor. David says, oh, I can't wear that. I'm not used to that. That would hinder me. So I'll just go like this. And so he goes out to fight. And you know what he has with him? A sling. So you see what God's doing? After years of feeling like he's wasting time in the life as a shepherd, singing songs, slinging rocks, when the moment comes when God is going to use him, God uses David to sing songs and to sling a rock. God uses what David probably thought God could not use. And all the while, David's probably sitting out in the field going, shouldn't I be taking some classes or something to learn how to be king? But God is working the whole time using David at what he is already using. He takes advantage of that opportunity. And so David goes out to fight Goliath. Goliath sees him coming. Goliath says, you little boy. <laughs> I, I don't know why, I I say boy like that, I don't know why I did that. You boy, uh, I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David says in verse 45, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And then I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David didn't have a box for God. In David's mind, he didn't have a box. God can do anything. He can do something through someone like David. So David says, I'm going to cut off your head. That's what I'm going to do and he runs at Goliath as fast as he can. Verse 11 says that Saul and his army were scared. You know why they were scared? Because they had a box for God. They didn't see that God was all powerful and all great. They had a box that he fit in, and so when you can put God in a box, and that's as big as he is, you're gonna be overcome with fear, and the what if questions are gonna continue to pop in your head. What if Goliath wins? What if our nation becomes slaves? What if they take our land? What if the economy doesn't recover? What if it is cancer? What if I spend the rest of my life alone? What if the pandemic doesn't end? What if the next tornado gets closer to my house? And if your God is in a small box or in any box, those what if questions dominate your life. And all you can ever ask is, what if? Well, David doesn't see the what ifs of the situation, he sees the who is of the situation. And so, it's not david versus goliath it's it's not how david sees it it's god versus goliath that's how he sees it now we know the story is the story of david and goliath but david is thinking this isn't my battle it's god's battle so there's really no contest at all so in verse 33 saul says to david you can't do this and that's what you say when god is in a box god can't do this god can't heal god can't forgive God can't use me. He can't provide for me. God can't redeem this situation. And David says, yeah, he can. And the Lord will do it. And that day, everyone else sees a giant, but David sees something different. David sees God. He sees how big God is, and he knows this much about God, that God can do anything. And so you just read through the story, and you see how God works, and you're tempted to think, well, it's just a coincidence, though, that he was out slinging rocks and singing songs, was it a coincidence that Samson was placed between the two support pillars? Was it a coincidence that Joseph was in prison with the cupbearer to Pharaoh? Was it a coincidence that Ruth goes out and happens to find herself in the fields with Boaz? Is all that just a coincidence? God uses anyone to do anything. He can do that. Back in 2012, uh, the man who won the Boston Marathon was a man named Wesley Korrer. He was a Christian, and because he was a Christian and won the Boston Marathon, that gave him a platform to share his testimony. And so he says he, he, he grew up running in Kenya, and he tells about how he prepared for this race. He said his family didn't have any money for shoes, and so he ran barefoot to school five miles away every day. His mom was very strict, he was one of eight kids, and he says, my mom knew I was a fast kid, so she'd always pick me to run to the market for soap and food, and if I wasn't back on time, she would punish me, so I was always running away from punishment. But that helped me a lot in my running, even though I never thought I was training at the time. David never thought he was training at the time. And you may not know your training at the time as well, but God is training you now for something he has in store for you later. And he won't waste a challenge that you face. God is big enough to take whatever you're going through now and to use that to train and prepare you for his good and his glory later on. It's the theme of the story. But maybe the way we most often put God in a box is when it comes to God's timing, which can be at any time. Because we want God to fit into our calendar. We want him to operate on our timetable. And so typically we say, God, we believe who you are and we believe what you can do and how you can act. And so here's the timetable. Here's the time frame you have in order to accomplish that. David is anointed king, but it's over 15 years later that he actually becomes king. It's a long time of waiting. And about 10 of those years are spent as a man on the run because he's being hunted hunted like a wild animal by Saul because Saul understands that he's been anointed the next king. And so for 10 years, David lives basically in caves. He's, He's hiding out. And yet he constantly is singing about how great God is. In Psalm 27, he says, Take courage, be strong, and wait on the Lord. Now to us, it doesn't seem like a courageous thing just to wait. But it's courageous to wait on God. And if your God is in a box, it's pretty hard to wait for him because you're always thinking, I need to be doing something to make this happen. But David waits on the Lord. 2 Samuel 5, 4 records finally that David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that God can use anybody to do anything at any time? Do you believe that? The basic problem with the church today is an unworthy concept of God, or let's put it like this. It's that our God is just too small. So if your God's job description reads, make my life comfortable and convenient, your your God is too small. If your God says things like, don't take a risk, play it safe, your God is too small. If your God's job is to obey you and do what you want when you want him to do it, if God is like a genie who's there to grant your wishes, then your God is too small. If your God operates on your timetable and he keeps your calendar, then your God is too small. If your God loves Americans more than he loves Iranians, if your God is always saying come, but he's never saying go, then your God is too small. If your God never wrecks your schedule and messes up your plans, if he never asks you to do something that's not in your budget, if he needs a certain president to be in office to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, then your God is too small. If your God has never filled your eyes with tears because of his grace, if he's never taken away your breath because of his power, your God is too small. If your God's dream for you is to retire and spend 20 years taking it easy, If your God is a Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or just fill in the blank, then your God is too small. If your God is just fine with spending just one hour a week with you in church, your God's too small. If your God looks at your sin of greed or lust or gossip and he says, it's no big deal, you're better than most people. If your God says that your marriage is too messed up or your family is too fractured, if your God says that you're too young or too old or too broken or too poor or too late or too guilty, then your God is too small. If your God fits nicely into a box, then that's not God because God doesn't do boxes. And so I hope today you're reminded of the bigness and the greatness of God. You know, each of us are attacked by Satan in all different ways. We may not see it as Satan. We may see it as a boss or a friend or a neighbor or, or a person in another country. We, we don't see it as Satan. But Satan attacks you all the time. I hope that when Satan attacks you, you see that your God is not in a box. It's not a, a battle between Satan and you. This is God and Satan. And I hope you're able to say, like David said, who in the world does this guy think he is? Does he not know who he's messing with? I hope you have that assurance in your life that the God you serve, the God you belong to, does not fit in a box. And maybe today the first thing you need to do is just say, because you've never done it. There's a powerful God out there who just wants a relationship with you, but you've never said, okay, let's have this Maybe today is the day that you say, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to trust you with everything. You will be my God. And if you're ready to make that decision today, we're ready to help you do that. And there's people at both of the decision points on the side of the room. When we stand and sing, if you need to make a decision or you need prayer today, i want to invite you to the decision point room. So let's stand together and sing.